Musical Theater Writer Guy is recorded as a YouTube channel series on Muncie Lenape and Canarsie lands. The audio from each episode is also released here in podcast form. To watch or to learn more, please find us on YouTube or through my website at michaelraddy.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-R-A-D-I dot com. Enjoy the show. They don't have the supporting experience to say, actually, I think this character wouldn't wouldn't wear a corset. Like I know it's period, and but like here are the reasons why maybe it wouldn't be this, or it would be a corset, but but it would be um say like one that has elastic or something that gives them more flexibility or you know whatever and we you know we can talk through that compromise when we think about originating artists we usually think about the writers or the directors but what about all the other originating artists today's conversation with stephanie may fisher a costume designer and a very good friend of mine i think will open up your mind a little bit to the other originating artists in the process and how collaborating with them is vital Welcome back to the interview series, everyone, which I'm still currently calling Writer Talk. Writer Real Talk? Writer Real Talk. That's what it is. In which I interview writers and other originating artists who work in the musical theater. Each interview will have a topic or a theme that we will be discussing along the way, but we may meander. Who's to say? It's all an experiment. I don't know. So... Without any further ado, I'd like to introduce my guest for today. Now, Stephanie is someone that I met oh so many years ago when uh, I moved to uh, Rochester, New York in high school, my sophomore year, and uh, somewhere in the first week there, uh, a little story that maybe we'll tell, I don't know. I met this young lady who uh, quickly became one of my best friends in the world and still is today. She, I first knew her as a performer and a singer, as well as a clarinetist. And uh, very quickly, uh, she also became a, a favorite costume design friend of mine as she went forward in her studies and we became just closer human beings. And now we live together. We're in, we're in the same apartment right now, just different rooms. Isn't that weird and delightful? You wouldn't be able to tell it, though, from anything <laughs> about the rooms. <laughs> nope. We, we, are, we are on opposite sides of one wall right now, but who, <laughs> who could say? So please join me in welcoming our guest today, Stephanie May Fisher. Hey, Steph. Hello. How are you today? I'm hot because it's August. It is. It is August in New York City. It is, it is hot. It's humid. And very schnitzy. Very, very schnitzy. But for the audience, could you please uh, tell us a little bit about who you are, uh, how you identify as an artist, what you do in your life and career, and uh, maybe what work of yours may have been seen at some point in different locations? Sure. Um, that's a, it's, I figured you would ask this at some point. It's an ever-changing and evolving thing, particularly in the last couple of years. Um, I started my career as a stitcher and spent about six or seven years doing that while also designing in my spare time, um, working more when I wasn't at work. And um, I did that in a few different places. I started in Cleveland at Great Lakes Theater 
and then and was designing at places like Cleveland Public Theater and some other small uh, organizations there, all of which do like remarkable work that people I think don't think of Cleveland as an arts hub, but it it is to a degree that is like not known to people that didn't go to school there and grow up there. Yeah, I had um, no idea until you were working in that uh, area. I was like, oh, I, there, there are this many opportunities. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, obviously, compared to New York, like, it's a different beast. But there are, you know, there's many colleges there that sort of feed into the local scene and then also feed into places like New York and L.A. Um, uh, and and musical theater programs, which is not what I ever was going to school for. But I went to school with people that that very much were and very much are still doing it. Um, there was someone from my undergrad who just joined the cast of Six like a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so, I, know that. Um, the Broadway I don't know. Yeah. I don't know her personally, but um, she comes up in my suggested friends all the time. <laughs> um, and so from there I moved to Baltimore, which is a market that is much harder to work in um, as a theater technician. There's basically only one professional theater that pays anybody a living. Um, and it's it's a very small uh, production organization. They their costume shop is like two people. Um, wow. It's Baltimore Center Stage, and I they they'll overhire people, but it's there's no like full time um, stitching position. And actually, the <laughs> the job that I would need to get in order to get my dream job someday of being there in charge of their costume shop um, is open right now, and it's like killing me a little bit that it's not a good time for me to apply and pick up and move to Baltimore. But, um, cause I never expected that job to open. Um, so while I was there, I was actually commuting to Washington DC for most of my work and, uh, stitching at Washington national opera and signature theater in, uh, Virginia and doing some wardrobe at Shakespeare theater. So I kind of like made it my mission to do every, costume support role mm -hmm. as I also you know become the designer that I want and hope to be smart because um, I think it really affects the way I interact with the team um, so I've been a costume shop manager at New York Station Film I've done a bunch of wardrobe I'm now starting to work in um, both like larger scale commercial theater and film as an assistant um, so I, I like to have my fingers in everything <laughs> and I'm, I would say very much both a maker and a designer. I don't see myself leaving either one behind at any point. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. You do a lot of things. You have many <laughs> skills. You, you constantly impress me with how many skills you have and then choose to acquire <laughs> because many a time you've moved into a situation where you're like I don't know if I know fully what this job is but we're gonna find out and so far none of them have killed me which um I wasn't always sure of going in or coming out um but I'm alive so <laughs> living is good dying is not so, so good. far so good <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah. And you've worked at a lot of places. I recall that period of time in, uh, in when you were in Baltimore and commuting to D.C. all the time, because we were on the phone a lot. I was commuting to Long Island. <laughs> you were commuting to D.C. And I'm like, oh, what are you doing? I'm driving. <laughs> um, 
But I think it's impressive the number of different places you've worked and the number of different jobs you've done. It gives you a lot of perspective into uh, what all is involved or could be involved at these different levels of theater in your department. Yeah, I, um, you know, there's a, a model of working in general in the world that is what most people do, which is like they get a job at an office and they stay at that. And maybe it's not as true anymore, but it used mm. to be you get a job in an office and you stay there and just get promoted until you can't be anymore and then you retire. And that sounds like torture to me. Um, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, never have really been into that. And I, I, when I first started my career, I thought like, I need to go learn the right way to do everything. And then I very quickly figured out that there are many right ways. And yes. the only way to learn those right ways is to work for a lot of different people. Um, so I've, I've learned different things from everybody I've worked for, every draper, every designer. Um, but I also have learned like six or seven ways to do the same thing, mm -hmm. uh, which is so valuable. Because when you're working at like different levels on different timelines with different budgets, you know, even day to day, um, the version of that thing that you use changes. Um, so I could I could do the same alteration three different ways in a week, depending on who I'm working for and what our timelines are and how much they're paying me and all of those things. So Right, right. Which is, first of all, fascinating to me that that's a thing <laughs> that you can do. But also I think it makes design so unique in the theater. Uh, whereas like on the artistic side, writing, performing, directing, I feel like there are fewer options. Like there, there are a, a certain set of tools that that everybody uses, and it, it doesn't really depend on how much you're getting paid necessarily, or even your timeline. Like there's a certain set of tools, and that's what's going to be done. Um, but on the design side, the fact that the same thing can be done six or seven different ways is kind of blows my mind. If I really sit down and think about it too hard, I try not to. But um, I, like, I'd be curious to hear more about that at some point. But we don't have to talk more about that today. Well, for me, what's cool about it, and I don't need to say a lot about this, but um, what's cool about it is that I think once you realize that, it eases some pressure a little bit because just mm. because your impulse is to do something a different way than, say, your boss wants it done doesn't mean that that way is wrong and it doesn't mean that you're stupid and it doesn't mean that you're never going to get hired again it just means that you learn from someone with a different um set of, of instructions or in a different context where that might have been the best way to do something so I have trouble remembering that <laughs> when I put a lot of pressure on myself but like there's not there's not just one right way which I think like I think a certain generation of theater technicians in particular would have you believe that there is one right way. But I have learned from so many of that generation of theater technicians that I know that they don't even agree on what that one thing would be. Yeah. And, and I do think that that is uh, an important just general lesson for anyone who works in this industry to remember is there is no one right way to do anything. And just because you learned X, Y, or Z does not mean that you are any less than anyone else. Right. Um, I will note that in in um, certain 
context, especially as technicians, there is a right way and that involves safety. <laughs> so like Sorry. I think for electricians and like people who build scenery, it, there is a much narrower path <laughs> as far fair. as what's allowed and what's safe. <laughs> yes. Safety is always paramount. <laughs> Please. <laughs> um, well, lovely. I'd love to do a little uh, getting to know you. I've got some questions here before we dive into our topic today, which for those of you playing at home is about collaboration with design. Um, broadly, we'll get more specific, I assume. The two of us are chatty folks. But my first question to you is, um, is there a, a writer, does not have to be musical theater, but it can be, but is there a writer's work that you as a designer gravitate toward? Mm, yes. <laughs> um, I, without even having read all of her work, because I'm, I don't read a lot of plays, um, Sarah Rule for me is just like so inspiring. And I feel like every time I read or see one of her plays, it pushes me to think differently about what a play can be and what a character can be. Mm. And like, I, you know, I've never designed melancholy play, but it has to be a brilliant mind that in the course of a live theatrical event, wants you to turn a person into an almond. Like I'm just obsessed with that idea. <laughs> and I have no idea how it actually is achieved, but, um, but yeah, I always like get stars in my field of vision when I am around her work. <laughs> and, and, and is it just because her work just uh, so readily forces you to think outside the box? I think that's a lot of it. There's also a, there's a whimsy to her work that I um, really identify with, as you might be able to wow. see. <laughs> um, I love, uh, you know, a little bit of fantasy, a little bit of, uh, you know, very serious heightened realism that that is also ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and, and like her uh, interpretations of very old and well-beloved stories, I mm -hmm. think are are very interesting and fresh. And I want to design all of them, honestly. Like I would just, if I could, if my life's work could be designing her entire um canon I would that would make me so happy <laughs> you heard it here first folks if you know Sarah rule you're driving <laughs> fun. please and thank you <laughs> uh that's that's fun and I also think that that's interesting the way that you describe her work I think also describes a certain sect of musical theater that I also personally know that you enjoy um that the idea of the whimsy but but the, the seriousness with which heightened things can be taken, um, the 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 way that it might force you to think outside of the box for for many different reasons. Um, but yeah, that's a good answer. We love Sarah Rule. Um, all right, next question. Thus far in your career, and let's keep let's keep it to theater for the moment. But if you want to expand past that, please feel free. Uh, is there something that you would consider uh, having been your biggest challenge thus far? Mm. Oh, that's, uh, oh, there's so many possible answers to this. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, 
am finding, and this is a this is a very current discovery, that um, you know, when I okay, when I was a stitcher, I was very much like at, at the bottom rung of a certain hierarchy. And I was okay there because, which is ridiculous also because stitching is like very skilled work and can yes. make or break a, a designer's output basically. Like if, you're sti- if your stitchers are not good or if you treat them badly, um, that's a make or break moment. And yet stitching is like in many cases, you know, very low paying and it's considered sort of entry level, which is I'm grateful that that's how I got started, but also it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it's such a specific skill set. Yeah, yeah. So I was okay there because I was like learning and there it, it's it's math, right? It's like mm. there's, as discussed, there are many right ways to do something, but there's always one way that the person in charge of you wants it done. And so there's like a beginning, middle, and there's an answer. And I was okay there. And I... I'm also very good um, at being in charge. (laughs) Like that is something that I have been very comfortable with since I was very young. Um, I panic about it when I'm anticipating leadership roles, (laughs) but once I'm in them, I tend to thrive. So when I'm the designer, when I am the shop manager, I typically feel pretty good about like what needs to be done and how to make it happen. Mm -hmm. So the the thing that I'm discovering is a huge challenge for me is uh, being an assistant, which is um, almost being in charge, except that as an assistant, I am not generating the thoughts about what needs to happen. I'm trying to interpret somebody else's thoughts about what needs to happen and, um, and what the timelines for those things are. And that has been the last year in which I've like started to, to do that at a variety of levels for a bunch of different people and in, in film and in theater, um, that has been one of the most difficult things I've mm. ever done. And it makes me very eager to be in charge again. <laughs> yeah. Understandable. Um, for the, for those at home who may not know what the job of an assistant is, could you just quickly give a rundown of what, what that, potentially I'll let you know can when I figure it out. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so, well, the parts that I know I know how to do are, uh, for example, for, for a large musical or something where there's a shop or there is the opportunity to make some of the clothes, um, swatching is one of the responsibilities. So, uh, and that I know doesn't mean anything to people that are not in my field because my family is always like, what is that again? <laughs> um, <laughs> so basically, like, I run around the garment district uh, with digital copies of the of the sketches and get little pieces of fabric. This is for the vest and pants I'm making. Um, I get little pieces of fabric according to what the designer has told me they're interested in. And I, you know, take all of this information about it and bring it back to them and they flip through and they go no 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 and then they decide and then I go buy the thing um (laughs) so that's my favorite part uh because I love fabric and I'm because of all my years of making things I'm good at fabric I understand Mm. fabric um which shockingly is something that like a lot of designers don't have a background in so that's Mm. one of those things that I'm very grateful to my my technician background for 
Um, but that is just like one tiny, tiny, tiny part of the job of being an assistant. And then, you know, there's a lot of paperwork involved, um, which is different depending on where you're working and who's going to use it and the size of the cast. And, you know, there's, there are basic frameworks, but I have rarely used the same templates twice because they just don't always work in every context. This just gives um, me records of, of like the individuals and costumes and what, what all is involved, or are you talking like more financial records sort of stuff? All of it. Um, okay. So like, uh, I always start, whether I'm a designer or an assistant, like usually there's some kind of a scene breakdown mm-hmm. that then gets expanded into like, not only this is the character that this person is in this scene, but also this is what they wear as that character. Mm-hmm. So, so there's that. And then there's usually like piece lists that each, um, each actor will typically get a copy of so they can see what they're supposed to be wearing and wardrobe uses that to make sure that they have given them the right pieces or they have the right items for a quick change. There's rentals paperwork, um, keeping track of where you've rented from and when it's due back and all of those things. There's definitely financial paperwork, um, keeping track of receipts, all of that stuff. So it's a lot, it's a lot of that, but it's also like, having to switch back and forth very quickly between all of that organizational stuff and like artistic chaos (laughs) (laughs) of which there is a lot. (laughs) Right. Right. Because ultimately you, you you are the implementer of, of the, the larger design that's been created. You're the one who has to really make sure that it is overseen to make happen. Yes. Yeah. And then at a certain point, there's also like, um, there's shopping, like in addition Mm -hmm. to the fabric, like any contemporary clothing shopping, um, there's pulling at rental houses. If it's a period show in particular, there's, um, a lot of emailing and a lot of communicating depending on who the designer is and how they like to handle that. Um, and then (laughs) once you feel like you're almost done, there's also swings that you have to close. Oh, right. (laughs) And like, um, something that I've learned a lot about, uh, is how stupid internal swings are in COVID times. Um, because, you know, one person goes down and there's this ripple effect and then three people go down and your show closes three days before Christmas, you know, like it's, (laughs) it's uh, a little wild that we're doing internal swings in this time, but we are. And so then it's like making all of that tracking paperwork so that, Mm. you know, if they use some items from their normal track, but also have specialty items for their understudy track that wardrobe knows how to find those things and when they wear those things because by the by the time that they go on I'm long gone and so is the designer so right right (laughs) yeah good point yeah I I think that is something something that makes design very unique is that your job is done when it's frozen and then you're gone and then hopefully there's been enough information and systems in place that the people who are still there helping out and making these things happen regularly so they know what to do. Um, Yeah. My brain wants to explode even just thinking about that. 
Yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I did all of that for the first time this winter on a very large new musical. And I, I yeah, I was overwhelmed for sure. But, you know, we did it. You did it. It ran, it closed <laughs> and nobody died. <laughs> so we're doing okay. <laughs> nobody died. Thank goodness. Um, <laughs> one other aspect of this job, I feel like, people may not know and I, I feel like it's worth saying here uh, can you speak a little bit to the purchasing aspect and like how it works budgetarily with over purchase and then return because I think again costumes are unique in this way and I don't know that a lot of people know yeah um it can be tricky because uh depending on the size of the company you're working for they may or may not give you the funds to over purchase the way that <laughs> most designers would like to. <laughs> um, so particularly in film, um, you know, you end up buying, because of the timelines largely, you end up buying uh, about, the, the guideline my, the most recent designer I worked with uses is three times the budget that you have for that character. <laughs> You'll spend that amount of money. Yeah. You'll spend three times their budget. Um just to be able to fit them. And then you have to return <laughs> two thirds of that uh, or more. You know, uh, we actually, on this last movie, um, I returned, I definitely returned more than two thirds because we spent like four or five times the budget for this one character just because he needed, he needed suits, which are expensive and, uh, and also vary a lot in cuts and, you know, how flattering they are per person. Um, and he was coming from, uh, I think London on two separate occasions. So we had like very short timeframes to be able to fit him. So we, we spent like 45 grand in a week. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end of the day the budget for his character was like $6,800 okay yeah <laughs> yeah so um and not all of that 45 grand was on him but like most of it was um the accounting department was freaking out they were like could you not <laughs> and we were like no <laughs> you you want um, you want close for this character right so yeah. here's what we yeah. got to do. So, so we do that. We do a fitting. We reject a whole bunch of stuff. And then if you're lucky, there's a, a, an entry-level person in your department who takes care of a lot of those returns. Um, mm. But in my case, it was me. Yeah. This <laughs> so I not only, not only was I doing like, and this was like a very small uh crew there were only two of us in our department me and the designer so we both were doing things that are not technically in our job description because it just had to be done um but then I spent uh many days schlepping uh lots of bags throughout Soho trying to get things returned and it was very hot and very sweaty and then there's also like um once stores figure out you're a stylist if you go back there a lot like they'll they'll nab you with like you know you have to keep 30 percent of this receipt and like they're, they're really a lot of stores are cracking down on stylists but it's it's like we're just trying to do our job your return policy is in place for everyone else like 
why is it different for people that have to buy a lot? Like what, you know, it's just what we have to do. So, um, so there's also a lot of like, uh, (laughs) telling stories that may be true, but it's not why you're shopping today. Like I bought suits telling the salespeople that I was helping my roommate, uh, (laughs) figure out his personal style which is not untrue but no that that's wasn't happening, happening. <laughs> and it was even close to your size <laughs> but that's I'm not gonna buy you a suit sorry <laughs> what hey <laughs> I've got a budget of zero dollars please well yeah Todd Snyder is probably a little expensive <laughs> alas huh. all right so, very 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 interesting I mean these are these are parts of uh, your job in your department that I did not know until, honestly, we were living together over the past couple of years. I really heard more about the inner workings. So I, I thought perhaps the audience may be interested in such things. Um, see, I told you these initial questions would, would get us chatting a lot. So <laughs> we're touching on some of what we're doing chat about anyway. Um, but my third question for you is, is there something that you've seen as your greatest success thus far in your career? Mm-hmm. Probably. This is harder. <laughs> it is always harder to talk about the positives, yeah. Yeah. Um, I... Well, to speak about a particular production, and this is, it's frustrating for me that this is an academic production because um, I wish more people could have seen it, honestly, because it's like, I uh, was fortunate to have an opportunity to design Spring Awakening at my last year of grad school. And that, that is a dream, was a dream show for me because I love period clothes. I love period clothes with a contemporary twist Mm -hmm. um I love doing something that's like not fully of a time and place like I love to have the flexibility to play with details and things um and I think it's a brilliant um adaptation again of an old story that still has relevance that still resonates with young people um because you know we live in a time and place that has adopted 19th century german values in ways that are very problematic i don't know what you're talking about but (laughs) Uh. um and so yeah it was an absolute dream and i uh was able to incorporate some of my favorite things which are um knitwear that was a little bit anachronistic uh but made a lot of sense because there's a lot that happens outdoors and um I was able to do like really fun and we got to build everything like this was the the I think the biggest triumph for me is like I got I had an opportunity to do this as though it were Broadway Because this never happens, right? Like, if it's not Broadway, you're not building everything. Right. It's not a thing. It's just not a thing. But I designed something, and I'm not going to say that this was on purpose, but I designed something that we couldn't rent. (laughs) Got it. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know, luckily I had a department that instead of saying, you're going to have to redesign it because we can't, we don't have the budget or the time or the support for this. They said, I think we can do this. Let's figure it out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and it was Spring Awakening really in terms of like cast size uh, and number of clothes is not that big of a show. Um, But for someone who has never had the opportunity to build an entire musical before, wow, that was overwhelming because you have to choose every, every fabric, every lining, every trim, every, like every detail of a collar or a sleeve or a skirt length or a ruffle, like every, you have to, you have to make decisions about all of those things. And you know what I really hate is making decisions. (laughs) I can attest. It's true. (laughs) because once you've made a decision you have left so many other decisions behind and you can no longer make that decision right yeah um so it was and I shopped for fabric in New York um which was like a mission of mine during school because I knew I was moving here and I went to school in Texas which there are some fabric stores in Houston but Austin is a total fabric desert there's like nowhere so I did my fabric shopping in New York because I wanted, by the time I got here, I wanted to be proficient, um, which I now definitely am. Um, And the show, it was just a beautiful show. And uh, the interim chair of our department, who has now gone on to, he's starting this fall as the chair of the theater department at Carnegie Mellon. He pulled me aside at intermission. We weren't even done with the show yet. And he said, this is, the most beautiful design I've seen uh, on on a UT stage in a while, like maybe the whole time I've been here. Yeah, like I he didn't just know that you didn't even tell me. Yeah, that. he said like the nicest things, and he's a knitter too, so he appreciated the knitwear, <laughs> um, which we didn't make for the most part, other than the shawl I was knitting like during tech. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he he said like really kind, wonderful things, and the best part about that was that it just matched how I felt about it. Like I was very proud of it. I was very happy with it. There were very few things that I would change. Like if I designed it again, would I do something different? Sure. Yeah. But there are very few things that I would have changed about that production. Mm. So, and we had a great team. Like we just, we had a team that we all felt like we could respond to each other's work and like, raise questions of like you know integrity to the storytelling and like it was a very safe um process where and very trusting design team like production yeah okay yeah 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 yeah. I thought that that might be one your answer on this question because I've heard you talk about this process so many times and how much you loved it. Um, by the way, are there are there places where people could see pictures of said design? There are. Uh, <laughs> there are. There is one place. Uh, I never put it on my Instagram, which is something I should do when the anniversary rolls around. Um, but my website is just my full name.com. It's Stephanie May M A E Fisher.com. Uh, and that's Fisher with and no C. Just S A. No C. 
the English way. Um, yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, it's all, it's all there. Highly suggest people go take a look. Too many photos of that show, actually. Like I, <laughs> I have been told that I could probably pare it down, but if I do that, I won't have one of every character, and then I'll be sad. So, <laughs> I or not, it's hard. It's hard when you made everything, you know, because it's, it's, it's not like it's not like I bought that or I pulled that off a rack. It's like no, I put effort into making it that thing. So. Yeah, I mean, like, literal definition of originating artist. Idea was from you, and then from, from the ground up, everything built from that brain of yours, which I think is just so freaking cool. Um, I, I think you just answered the next question, which is, which of your, your full designs are you most proud of? Um, mm. However, I'll still, I'll still throw it out there, because there's a second part to that one which is, do you have a favorite uh, specific piece that you've ever designed? Hmm. You know, favorite individual piece is probably from a different show. Mm -hmm. um, because the thing about Spring Awakening is that it was such an ensemble piece. And yeah. so, like, every piece of it had to fit with all the other pieces of it. Um, in a way that, and especially because it's a small cast, like that's a different, when it's a big cast, it's almost easier because you can use the same color twice. And like, you know, like stuff like that. But when you have five girls, like you have a pink, a blue, a yellow, an orange, a purple, like, you know, it's like, right. there's only so much you can do. Um, and then you, so you have to do that. And then you want to make it not look like that, which is <laughs> also really hard. Um, but Unique without another, looking like a standout. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and without looking like you just like vomited a rainbow on stage. Um, it's tricky. <laughs> so unless you want that, if that's what you're going for, like more power to you. Totally. Um, Very appropriate for some so. shows, I'm sure. <laughs> but um, another thing from grad school that I was really proud of was uh, we did this play called Madawan, written by my dear friend, Dan, who also lives in New York now. Actually, you guys should meet. Um, yeah. I didn't know that he lived in New York until very recently. Um, but it's about a shark, which, as you may know, uh, lives underwater. And so, <laughs> and uh, half of the play takes place, like it's from the point of view of the shark. So um, you're very much like underwater with the shark when you do this beautiful play that Dan wrote. And so our tap, but there's not, there were stage directions about how the shark had been done in previous iterations, but those were very low budget, um, like Chicago storefront situations. And so Dan basically said to us, like, this is what we did, but I'm not tied to any of this. Mm -hmm. So, like, do whatever you want, yeah. which is awesome that he was just, like, so open to whatever we came up with, um, as was our director. Our director did not come in, my friend Lane, did not come in with a plan for what they wanted the shark to be. Mm -hmm. They said you know, come back to me in a week with your ideas and we'll just talk about them. Um, and so we did that and we ended up making a movement ensemble 
which I think every like faculty person we said this to was like, okay. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> like if you can make that not look bad, we'll be really surprised. <laughs> Um, but it ended up being very cool. And so the shark started as one person who was also the voice of the shark and, um, grew to, I think 23 people by the end because, because this, yeah, it was big. The shark, um, in the story enters smaller and smaller waterways and is also literally growing. She's pregnant. And so by, by adding people to this, ensemble body um we were also giving the impression that she was entering smaller space even though the actual footprint of the space um stayed the same and so i did um the ensemble costumes actually i would do differently now like i on that one i chose to build a bunch of the human period pieces and that was not the right move um Mm. We should have put our energy into the shark. So we should have built all of that shark ensemble. But that's not where the shop wanted to put energy in. And I do understand that because in terms of like what I designed and good projects for the students and good things to add to stock and stuff like that, Ah, it made sense to build human clothes that could be (laughs) reused and were good for construction projects. I need humans. Yeah, but... um, so we did like mostly some dyeing on existing pieces for the ensemble, but for the shark figurehead, we built this thing that was like sort of 1920s inspired. The The story takes place in 1916. So the shark was this like looking toward the future kind of, but it was not in, in period fabrics. It was in fabrics that looked like shark skin. So it was like, big paillette sequins and iridescent chiffon to like give the impression of movie. It's sort of like rainbow fish. If you know that book, um, <laughs> definitely inspired by rainbow fish That's cool. and also a lot of fashion, like runway stuff that I found. And I mm-hmm. love that costume. I still, it was destroyed by the end because it had to go through some things, but, um, but it, it makes me really happy to think about. And the movement ensemble was very successful. So Heck yeah. <laughs> we proved everybody wrong. <laughs> oh, I love that. I love that a lot. And there, there's pictures of that on your website as well, yes? Yes, absolutely. I also got to do a blue whale for that one. So that was exciting. Also, like anthropomorphized is definitely still a human playing a whale. But um, yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. I, I guess I didn't know about the movement ensemble aspect of that show, which I I think that's a brilliant idea to try. And I'm so glad that it worked too, because that is, that must have been a lot of fun to put together, first of all. But it seems a very smart way to go about shifting size in a way that is not going to force like major set changes. Or, right. Um, or building like three puppets, you know, which like right. we didn't really have the capacity to do. Mm. So I have some problems on it. Very cool. Very cool. All right, I've got one last question for you. Okay. Which is, is there a specific show or it could be a musical movie um, that made a, a particular impression on you mm-hmm. as a child? Yes. Yes. 
uh, I remember being at home at the age of five with chicken pox, unable to go to school and watching, not for the first time, I'm five years old, Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Which is not, it's not appropriate for a five-year-old. No. And it has a lot of problems in today's world. (laughs) Um, But, but, obviously, like, I didn't realize this till years later when I had decided I was going to be a costume designer, come color high water. Obviously, what I loved about it was the clothes. Yeah. And I... In like 2012 or 13, I was in Boise, Idaho, and there's this beautiful 1920s movie theater there that's all like, all the decor is Egyptian inspired, and it's it's like been preserved and um, renovated, and like it's really gorgeous. And they showed Gone with the Wind that summer when I was in Idaho, and I went, and I just, I mean, I had never seen it on a big screen before I'd only seen it on like square TVs you know like (laughs) three flat screen even and I was sitting like three rows back and looking at this giant screen and just thinking oh my god they did all of this without the internet Ah. like this giant film and they used they like wrote letters or made phone calls I guess um to get what they needed (laughs) they (laughs) they couldn't order they didn't have Amazon. They weren't like, no. I don't know. It just like boggled my mind to think that they did such a huge production and like knowing they must've needed multiples of all of those gowns and like, just like totally blew my mind that they could achieve something of that scale at that time. Wow. But yeah, that, that white dress with the green and the hat, like I still <laughs> want one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I could see you. I could see you in that outfit for sure. <laughs> um, that's an excellent point, though, about those old films, those old, very grandiose films. They they did all that kind of just out of their brains and passed down information and as many books as they could possibly use as research. Like very different way of designing things. Yeah, the research and then which, like, honestly, when I was an undergrad back in the day, in, so in the old. olden days, we uh, we were required to research from books. Um, and I, I remember um, uh, my costume design professor <laughs> cautioned us against uh, Wikipedia all the time. <laughs> Wikipedia, oh goodness. Um, and like, it was the early days of Pinterest. And now I can use Pinterest as a research tool because I'm good enough at particular decades that I can really like piece out, okay, like this is probably early 1890s. This is probably 1895 because the sleeves are bigger. So like, even if it's not dated, I can, I can corroborate things and figure it out. But when you're 18 and you've never researched and designed before, like don't start at Pinterest. You can use it for inspiration, but in terms of details, like you, you got to go to a book. And I still think mm-hmm. that I have tons of books. You do. So. <laughs> you do. Very large, very interesting books. Um, <laughs> yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Um, the amount of knowledge you have in your brain that I don't know 
anything about it fascinates me. I want all of it. Can you just like write it out, write out everything you know for me so I can take a look? That'd be great. Thank you. Um, that's what I get paid for, actually. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> all right. I'll come up um, with a bunch of another. Another point, though, I that I thought of that I'd like to make before we move on is like sure. um, technology is so helpful and uh-huh. so useful, and I'm so glad we have it. And because of the way things like the internet have sped up the way we are able to work, mm-hmm. there's now this expectation that we will work at this increased speed. Ah. And it just keeps pushing us, you know, like something like Amazon Prime. I, I, I wish I didn't have to use Amazon every day of my working life, but I really don't have a choice. Like right. if, if I, and especially at, at levels where the company isn't providing a Prime account, like if I don't have a Prime account, I can't do my job. And so I just think that's worth putting out there into the world to say like I think I think a lot about how we are pushed to perform at a certain level at a certain speed and how technology has contributed to that speed and increased that speed yeah yeah it's almost like instead of providing more time so that these resources can be utilized in a way that would allow for let's say a large production or something instead it's like oh well if you can get material that fast then you can do x y or z which is much larger than what you would have been able to do in that same period of time before right but really that's just compounding the issue and not solving the thing yeah and covid has really challenged that because the supply chains have been so screwed up yeah and so it's been very difficult like last november i was working in a musical and trying to find a full seat dance belt like you couldn't get one for love or money like there was just Mm. no they didn't exist in the world and i had i had orders canceled tights skin tone tights like a couple of companies that made a a large variety of skin tones have have gone out of business or they're not able to get the same tights manufactured that they have been that they've had for years that the industry has relied on yeah. And so it's been a mess and yet no one has lengthened the timelines for getting any of this done. It's just like constantly finding another way to make it happen. Yeah. Which I don't think is unique to our industry. However, I will say that it is something that I see across our industry a lot of um the the push and the go 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 and the faster and the better and without necessarily taking into consideration the human component of what all that really means whether that be in the midst of a pandemic or just like the exhaustion level and the number of hours worked by people involved I think that is something that we can all do better with just Mm -hmm. across the board And I often think that costume designers and other people in the costume portion of the industry are sort of uniquely situated to address some of those things Mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. Number one, 
because we're often kind of shunted into this women's work category, um, we've been fighting this fight for ourselves for a long time to try to be paid for the amount of work that we're doing. Mm -hmm. But also, um, compassion for the other human components of production is so much a part of what we do every day. Like we have to, we bring it into the fitting room. We think about it when we sketch, we, you know, when we, when we draw a body, many of us, if not all of us are thinking about, does this body match or represent the body of the actual performer? Like, can I take this into a fitting and know that the, the performer is going to feel supported and reflected in this rather than like shamed or, or disconnected from it. Um, so I think, I do think costume folks, many of us are, are trying to be at, at the forefront of this conversation because we are thinking not only about ourselves, but about the other humans <laughs> all in this, you know, art soup that we're making. Art soup. <laughs> um, yeah, let's actually stay on this for a moment because I think this is a really good entryway into talking about design as part of the collaborative process. Because I, I think oftentimes we talk about collaboration just generally in this industry. Actors get left out of that convo. But that's ridiculous. They are there very much so as the representation of in the final product. And they are there along the way as well, right? They're not just working with directors and musical directors, but they are working with designers in different ways and especially costume designers. Um, I, think, I think it would be worth hearing a little bit from you, if you don't mind, your process of, of going through, thinking through uh, interactions with performers in ways that are specifically, as you were saying, um, not going to bring negativity or shame into the room, but being as, um, uh, what's the word we're looking for? Ah. I don't know. I don't know either. Uh, be, like being as open to to what they're thinking and feeling and how they're responding to things as possible. Can you talk through that process a little bit? Totally. Um, so I I will admit that when I first started out, I did not come from training that included actors as collaborators. And I mm. think um, I definitely, like now with more years of experience behind me, um, I definitely think it's different with students, but that's like, I think what I came from is like the wrong way to address it with students. Uh, undergraduate students oftentimes don't have like the clarity about that, about like what can happen in a fitting room to really feel like they're a participant. Um, right. And to really, and they also many times have not like I'm putting them in a corset for the first time and so they don't have the supporting experience to say actually I think this character wouldn't wouldn't wear a corset like I know it's period and but like here are the reasons why maybe it wouldn't be this or it would be a corset but but it would be um 
say like one that has elastic or something that gives them more flexibility or, you know, whatever. And we, you know, we can talk through that compromise um, if there's money and time to make that happen. That's a whole other part of it. But, um, or like, oh, this feels a little uh, sexy for this character. And I'm just not sure that's really how this character feels in this scene. And like, here's what, I think she actually might be self-conscious and maybe if we change this about the costume, it would express that better or it would help me on stage. Um, I'm, it's hard for me to come up with examples because I, I'm thinking about working with students and I've never had a conversation like that working with an undergraduate student, although I try to invite it. Um, nice. But I, I've found that a lot of times they're just not ready for that conversation. Mm-hmm. Or they're too focused on like trying to figure out how to stand still for two hours <laughs> to, <laughs> to um, be thinking. About that. Um, but I, but the thing that I always do take in is like I want you to let me know if you're uncomfortable. I want you to let me know if you feel dizzy. You know, mm-hmm. if we need to rip you out of this corset, we will do it. <laughs> like, but we, you got to tell me, you just have right. to communicate with me. If you need water, tell me, if you need to sit for a minute, tell me if you have to take the shoes off, tell me. Yeah. Um, and so that's like at a very basic level of compassion. That's, that's where I like to set the baseline. Mm-hmm. Like I, I am, I need you to be alive at the end of this fitting. <laughs> and I would love it. <laughs> I would love it if you were also in a really good mood and like thrilled about the direction we're headed together. Right. But at the very least, I need you to be alive. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, so what, what's really interesting in hearing you talk about that is, as a performer, and I was definitely a performer before I was a writer, and I still work as a performer, I, yeah, this is not a conversation I was taught how to have, but I, I'll go one step further and say that there have been times educationally and professionally where I have tried to have or start those conversations and I've been shut down or shamed for it, um, which I don't think is ever okay to shame people for any sort of input that they want to be giving. I mean, if if there's not time, money, or or like space for it, that's one thing, but you know, don't don't bring shame into the conversation. But I do think that that is something that we don't talk about across the industry. We don't train actors to to speak up about their thoughts on a character, right? So often it's the design presentation happens. And that's when the actor is seeing for the first time what kind of thing they'll be wearing, and then it is presented to them, and it's try this on, and that's it. And like, there's no more to it than that. And they're, they're never talked through what kind of empowerment they do have, say. At the very least, this is very uncomfortable. Yes, it fits. And yes, I see that it's on your paper in front of you as part of the design. But this is extremely uncomfortable. Like, And if we can't have those kinds of conversations, then <laughs> as a baseline, then how are we going to have conversations of like, I I feel like, I see where you're coming from here with the design you put in front of me, but I also have this thought. Is this a viable thought? Right. Yeah. And I think like one of the, one of the flaws that I see in the way we educate theater makers is that, you know, there's a, there's a career trajectory that 
for many people ends in teaching. And I understand why it's that way. You know, you have to have an MFA or equivalent experience and, you know, whatever. And it's important that it's that way. And yet, because we work in a field that doesn't have like um, continued professional development Mm -hmm. as part of our lives, um, so many of the people teaching new professionals and I think this is, there's a turnover happening now. Like there's a lot of change happening, but, but certainly when I was an undergrad, so many of the people teaching came from a tradition of this is the design. You put it on, you wear it. There's no conversation here. Right. And also a tradition of a lot of body shaming. Like that too. the amount of body shaming I have heard directed at young well, any age, but particularly young performers is appalling. And I, so the fact that that is like so ubiquitous in the way costume design is taught is like, it has to change. It just can't be that way. You know, like it's not, it was never okay, (laughs) but, but like the world now is saying, we're not doing this. <laughs> like we're just, we can't, we can't do it. Um, right. And so yeah, that's like, like I always come in wanting the body and mind of the actor to be at ease. Which is a beautiful because and brilliant goal. I, 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 I say a lot that like somebody once asked me for another interview, what is costume design? And the first thing I said was it's therapy. <laughs> because it's I'm yeah. a little bit like your hairdresser mm-hmm. right or your nail technician that you say everything to mm-hmm. because we have to ha- very quickly have that level of trust yeah. in order to move forward together and for everyone to to be not only happy but like comfortable and supported and able to do their job because ultimately my design is about supporting the actor's ability to do their job. Mm-hmm. Right. The story and can't so be if, told if they don't feel comfortable enough to tell the story. Right. Or if, if, yeah, if the, if the design doesn't match with their interpretation of the story, mm-hmm. like I need to know that that's a conversation we need to have. And maybe we need to bring the director into it too and say like, we're, we're missing each other here. Mm-hmm. And like, you've obviously talked to me as the designer and the actor. So how do we triangulate this into something that works for all of us? Collaboration. That said, you know, that's in a perfect world. And it's right. really hard, again, in the timelines that we have mm-hmm. to make that happen a lot of the time. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah, just off that point quickly. I just did a summer stop show and the entire process from first day to closing of the show was 23 days total it's like there's there isn't time to be having those kinds of conversations because everything is being put together built bought while we are doing our eight days of rehearsal before tech begins like there isn't time in that kind of process which is unfortunate and is there more flexibility that should be had in there probably and how do we figure that out but I, I do also want to go go back quickly to this idea of bringing the director in. I also think that that's very important 
in terms of the body shaming aspect too, because I think sometimes if, I think it used to be often, I think we're moving towards sometimes. Uh, the culture created by the directors is less body shaming, uh, at least blatantly, um, but but still seems to be part of the overall environment of the production. And if the director is kind of supposed to be heading the ship here, or in a larger production, it could even be producers who might be setting that tone. These these are conversations that we we have to be having. Like it's not okay coming from any level of the hierarchy to to be doing that to anybody <laughs> on stage yeah. or off. Yeah, and so I've worked in bridal and it's the same thing, um, except that actors do this all the time and brides do it once. Like they come into this fitting room and they they are planning a day where they are in the spotlight the whole time and it, they want it to be perfect. And so theater is the most, is like the, the best training for working in bridal that I could possibly imagine or for being a bride like for any aspect of weddings um but it is near to impossible to convince a bride that what she's seeing is a problem with the clothes Mm. not with her body and that is that is always true like if something's not working, you know what's really easy to change? Yeah. And yeah. until about the last 50 years, people had all of their clothes altered. Mm. You know, even if they were buying things off the rack, they still went to their dressmaker or went to their dry cleaner or whoever and said, could you just like nip this in here and let it out here and shorten this here? And like that was just a part of the vocabulary of how people got dressed. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're now far enough removed from that, that people think it's a problem with themselves and the media, there's so much media that, that pushes that messaging. Um, I can't even watch television with commercials anymore because it's, it's so bad. But um, so whenever, whenever I have a chance, I try to remind people that like, Clothes as we buy them today are not made for your body. Right. They're made on a mannequin, the shape of which, the shape and sizing of which has not changed mm-hmm. in 70 years. And because of the way manufacturing has sped up and become more abusive. Yes. <laughs> clothes aren't even made well anymore. Mm. So like, you know, you can buy two tops in the same size and have them fit completely differently. So how is this a problem with your body? Right. It's not. Right. And it never was. <laughs> right. Oh my so that's goodness. what I want people to know when they come into a fitting with me is that like your body is never the issue. It is never the problem. I made a mistake. The clothes are bad. <laughs> Yeah, I want to fix it now. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. I hear you uh, very much so. <laughs> and like for I'll I'll just say for for the audience watching, just on a more personal note, I've been kind of going through this experience with Stephanie, kind of coaching me through this over the past several months, 
as I am beginning to explore getting a wardrobe that fits my body for the first time in my life. And that idea that you said, that's really hard for people to get in their heads. Uh, the clothes are the problem, not you. Is really hard because you're right. All of the messaging is there's something wrong with you. Your body is this or that, and that is not okay. And therefore, that's why this isn't fitting. And that, um, you know, has been a hard pill for me to swallow personally. Um, but also, I think that a lot of the performers out there could really use with that use that reminder <laughs> that it's it's not you. You're not the problem. <laughs> Well, yeah, because performers are being put through a meat grinder in terms of body image. <laughs> and like... Oh, say that again. <laughs> like, and it's not fair and it's not acceptable. And like, like I, I, rem I made a joke. I don't know when it was. I think it was to you though, just recently that like, um, they only put hot people on TV, but like, <laughs> why is that? And could we maybe adjust what that looks and feels like mm -hmm. like maybe we still only put hot people on tv but maybe hot people is a much broader definition yes you know like mm -hmm. <laughs> um yeah so i i feel for performers because like you know i i didn't pursue performing professionally so i didn't get all of that messaging from that perspective but i certainly got it and have right. spent a lot of time and energy working on my relationship with my own body because I don't think that I can, um, I don't think I can do my job really and hate my body. Because I don't yeah. think I can support people the way they need to be supported who are also struggling with those things if I am still like deep in that struggle. And I think that is important that any of us who, who works, I was going to say in this industry, but I guess really anywhere that just, yeah, you, you can't help other people through something or with something if you have not been able to do that work first yourself, or at least have started it being on the journey. Um, I think that's also a, a good and important reminder because um, it's like a judgment thing like if I'm judging myself how can I say that I'm not judging other people for that same thing right like that's not that's not a thing yeah so on the collaboration piece here just uh before we get to our final questions and things um I, d I do since this is a channel about writing <laughs> ultimately it's about all theater storytelling for sure, uh, but but writers specifically. Uh, could you speak to the process a bit about uh, collaborating with writers, especially mm -hmm. um, on new works? Um, it is different every time. Uh, <laughs> and I've had very good experiences, mostly. Um, and a couple of like very challenging experiences working with writers. Um, and I, I mean, I could speculate as to what that comes down to. Mm -hmm. um, I think most often it probably has to do with like their feelings of ownership about the work. Mm. Um, 
and possibly how insecure they are about it. But that's like truly a conjecture. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, the answer is we're all insecure about our writing uh, always and forevermore. Yeah. Um, but I think like something that um, doesn't happen a lot in academic environments, again, with, you know, the way they're set up is that writers and designers don't get a lot of opportunities to just like sit down and talk about their, about the work mm. and like for writers to, to be like, Hey, would you read this? And like, tell me, you know, just like, tell me what your first thoughts are about the design. And I, even as a costume designer, I always start with thinking about the space. So even though I'm not designing the scenery, I think about the environment and I think about like I gather research that you know is photography or art or whatever that has nothing to do with clothes that just like expresses a vibe and I know directors do that a lot of times too and will will give designers their version of that yeah um um but I think like the the most awesome uh opportunities I've had to work with writers have always been when the writers are like, when they truly trust designers to do their jobs. And also like, I don't know. I think sometimes the hardest thing is like, it feels like the playwright or directors sometimes too. Um, think that designers are trying to ruin their play <laughs> or, oh, like do no. some, or like do something and they obviously they've never said this to me I don't know if that's really what they think but from the designer's perspective it feels like that sometimes or it's like they think that we're pushing back about something because we want to ruin the production and mm -hmm. it's never that um it's because there's we feel a disconnect between what is written, what the director is trying to, like the story the director is trying to tell and, and what we're doing. And so we're usually just trying to ask the best possible questions to get us all telling the same story. Right. And I think that's like, I, I've had, I've struggled with directors a lot on this. If I can't get them to really like hone in on what story they're trying to tell, I have a hard time doing my job. Um, cause I need to know where to put the focus. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, mm, I have so many thoughts here. The first of which is that, and you and I have had this discussion before that costume designers are, are some of the best dramaturgs of a production. Like if there is not a higher dramaturg, I bet your costume designer and your director have done the most research out of everybody. Um, no offense to the other design teams, I love you all. But I do think that that ends up being true a lot of the time. And so I'd be curious to know from you, your feelings on how early in a process writers really can start thinking about speaking with design whether or not they end up designing the piece is a different story mm -hmm. but like speaking with designers having designers listen to look at material um and how that could potentially be beneficial to everybody involved i think at the point that a writer is thinking about scheduling a reading and like wants people in the room to offer feedback 
designers of every discipline should be a part of that room. That ooh, ooh, that's the pull quote from this interview. Say that again. <laughs> as I soon as the first, the, the writer's thinking about the very first reading for feedback, that designers yeah. of every discipline should be in the room. Yes, say more about that. Well, so everybody, like, my experience of, of um, playwrights doing readings of their work is that usually everyone who shows up might not be everyone they invite. I will grant that. But usually everyone who shows up is other writer friends of theirs, um, maybe a director friend or two, and actors. Mm-hmm. And I think that there are many reasons for that that are you know it's all like like how even how we socialize like the people that we gravitate towards and like the way academic programs are structured that's who we end up being around all the time and I think there's a lot of reasons for that but I think um I think playwrights do themselves a disservice if they don't know designers who are willing to offer feedback on their work because like just for a really dumb example that the the uh, shark play that I mentioned before is a period piece take place in 1916 and there was a line in the play and this was not a play that was still in development like at the point I was designing it it was a finished play mm. that the the player was no longer working on um but I there was a moment when I was like hey Dan I know you're not working on this play but I just want to offer something. There's this line in the script about how the father character has a sunburn on his neck. Mm-hmm. And that is physically impossible because the shirts he's wearing have collars that go all the way up to his hairline. And they huh. just wouldn't really, and, and also like the audience isn't going to see that when, you know, the mother gestures to it because he's going to be wearing a collar that goes all the way up to his hairline (laughs) so and he was he was willing to receive that feedback and change the line even though he was perfectly satisfied with where the play was right um so you know that's the kind of thing that had I been in the room at the first reading in Chicago however many years ago I would have said it then and not had to be like the jerk who says it, you know, going into tech of the third production. <laughs> right, right. Um, so it's, it's sometimes it's little stuff like that. And sometimes it's, I, I think designers are really good at seeing the big picture. Mm. Um, because we have to, in order to work together and in order to communicate. Um, and so you know, at the moment when a playwright is like deep in their play and they, we we can't see anything. (laughs) And there's like particular things that they're um, like hyper-focused on that they can't get out of their brains. Designers can pull back and say, oh yeah, I wasn't even worried about that this time. But here are the things I worried about. Like, you wrote a cinematic script for the stage and how are we going to do those transitions and no one can change their clothes that fast. Like some of it is practical stuff and some of it is storytelling. Some of it is like, I know this takes place in a bog and in three time periods, but what is the story about? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, Yes. My brain is like firing 
so fast right now because now I'm thinking about <laughs> King's Legacy specifically, but also even before getting to that, I've, I, I love hearing the perspectives of people on my work in general. And I think sometimes I get quizzical looks from other writers who are like, you're having who listening and how, for, for what? I'm like, well, because there are things that I'm not gonna be able to see, right? So uh, for instance, having the, the last reading I did of King's Legacy, designers who had already designed the piece came in and listened to the new version of to basically be listening for, is there anything in here that isn't making sense now with the story that we are all collectively trying to tell? Mm -hmm. Are there moments that are potentially problematic? Specifically, like you were just saying, uh, cinematic piece transitions, right? King's Legacy moves fast and there are a lot of locations. And so early on, I had lighting designer look at the, the show and be like, just tell me, is this doable? Can we create this many spaces with lights? Is that an option? And it's like, oh yeah, no problem. <laughs> None whatsoever, which was great to hear. But then yeah. well, the first time I brought it to a costume designer, they were like, how do you expect <laughs> to have this many people playing this many roles? I was like, okay, we are going to pare down the cast. And like now the cast is nine and there are fewer characters. And it's still a little bit crazy at times in that show. But at least there, there was feedback to be had along the way and things that I could adjust. Or even um, in, in uh, a reading in 2019, I had an actress listening in to the Anne Boleyn track to make sure that I had not screwed with the track in a way where it would be impossible to do something like a quick change <laughs> into, I don't know, say a wedding dress for the act one finale. You know, like <laughs> th things like that, you know, where we as writers can't possibly be listening in for all of that at once yeah. while still trying to tell the story we're trying to tell. I, I think it's a brilliant idea to have designers in early. Yeah, and I, I think like, I think that the, the place where we miss each other more often than not is like, I'm gonna ask probing questions but I'm not asking those questions because I don't want it to work or even because I think it can't work. I'm just asking them so that you're thinking about them. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying a cinematic script is a bad thing, but it, it's better if you're thinking early on before you get to a production about how much time is actually in those transitions and what needs to occur in those transitions. Yeah. Because if you don't think about that until the first production, then, then you're going to start hearing no from people. Mm -hmm. And wouldn't it be better if everybody came into that first production thinking about the possibilities rather than the places where you have to say no? Right. Nobody wants to do that. It's not fun to have to say no. Yeah. Yeah. And also like, you, you use the term probing questions, but like, I know that the general basis of those questions is usually just why. Like, this is a moment here. Why is it there? What is it serving? Which <laughs> I will say, a writer can often feel like an attack, being like, what? What do you mean, why? Because I wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but obviously, it's, it is an important thing to consider. 
because you may then think about it and be like, well, that was for a moment of a draft three drafts ago. It really has no place anymore. It doesn't need to and, be there. And know? we're usually, I would say, at least for me, like I'm usually asking why the way a toddler asks why. Right. Yes. Like, why is the sky blue? Why are there stars? Why is the world round? Why do our neighbors have a cat and we don't? Like, mm-hmm. I, you know, it's, I'm, I'm asking from a place of like expansiveness and yeah. just wanting to hear what you have to say. And then once I hear what you have to say, then I might push you to think, do you need it? Yes. Right. But it's, but it's the why is, is really just so that then we can have a conversation about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think in that same way, a lot of the best collaborative directors will do the same thing, sitting down with a writer and a script the first time, just asking, great. So why, why is this happening here? And what, why does this character do this? And just trying to get the full because I think something that writers often forget is the amount of information in our brains about the thing we wrote. We are showing a fraction of that. The tiniest sliver yeah. is actually in the piece that we are handing over to everyone. The rest of this gigantic pie of information is in here mm-hmm. and no one else knows what it is. <laughs> so when people are Except asking, for Tennessee Williams. <laughs> He actually gives us too much. The shade. I I will say there are certainly some writers out there who put all of their thoughts on the paper to make sure that it happens in exactly the way that they had intended. Yes, that is definitely a thing that occurred. (laughs) But for the most part, yeah, I think it's important for writers to remember that when people are asking why or what is this about, it's literally they just don't know and they want to know. Yeah. So we can tell the story. Good. Wonderful. Wonderful. Oh, you're great to speak with. Well, I know that. I talk to you every day. But <laughs> <laughs> I've got three three little finisher questions here. You ready? Okay. Okay. What is your favorite non-theatrical activity? Ooh. <laughs> Probably knitting. Ooh. What do you knit? <laughs> but maybe sewing. Uh Lately, sweaters and mm. monsters. The monsters are so cute. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I knit mm, pretty much everything because I had taught myself and it's like the only time I've stuck with something until I was good at it instead of like getting frustrated and giving up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that's necessarily true, just considering the amount of skills you've also acquired for you. Well, okay. It's the only time I've done that, like entirely on my own, not without, ah. not w- without like outside forces requiring that I continue. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Um, just as as uh, a little anecdote there, uh, Stephanie did also knit me a gigantic Gryffindor scarf, which is beautiful, wonderful, one of my favorite things. Um, she's very good. Um, lovely, great. Uh, is uh, next question? Is there a story? Uh, could be a story that doesn't exist yet in any medium, or it could be a show or a TV show or a film that already does kind of exist in the zeitgeist. 
that you really want to be designing for at some point? Oh. Like a story. Oh, God, I know there is, but am I going to be able to think of it now? Um, this is like trivia. This is where my mind goes totally blank. Oh, yeah, trivia. I don't know. I might have to get back to you on that one and put it in the show notes. That's fair. That's totally fair. Yeah, because that's a that's a big that's a big question. But I guarantee whatever it is, um, it's period, <laughs> and there's a female protagonist. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and and more uh, more female and or gender expansive characters than male characters for sure. So what I'm hearing is it's the king's legacy. Oh my god, what a weird thing! That's crazy. <laughs> That's so weird. Crazy. <laughs> How strange. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean that that makes a lot of sense. And like I, because I, I know some of the projects that you've said in the past that you'd really love to to do at some point. Um, Eurydice on that list. Oh yeah. Like, but I, again, like all everything Sarah Rule has ever written is on that list. Right. So. I, we can just blanketly say Sarah, Sarah Rule's entire, uh, I was going to say discography. <laughs> Not the right word. <laughs> I oh, love good. it though. <laughs> That's what her next anthology should be called. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> all right. And last. I love the hardcover thing. box set. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> Uh, it will go on and bookshelves. Um, last big question here. Um, what is something that you love or are proud of you don't get to speak about often? Hmm. Oh wow! And, and Why speaking about it to book? me doesn't count because you, you. Oh, say okay. Because I say everything to you. Um. Yeah. So, uh, because there aren't a lot of contexts where it is appropriate to talk about this, and I usually think it's not a good idea to talk about this. Um, I am, I'm really proud of the work I've done around like being comfortable in my own skin and it is related to my work work, but like it, it's something that's hard to talk about because it's very personal and mm -hmm. not everyone in my life is welcome to that part of, of my experience. Right. Um, but I think it's so imperative. And I remember when I was like 24, I had a friend who was in his late thirties and I met some of his friends who were also in their late thirties. And I thought, wow, I can't wait to be in my thirties because then I'm going to have it all figured out and I'm going to like myself and I'm going to have like, <laughs> just like the best people in my life. <laughs> and so now I'm 34 and I'm still working on it, but I have four years to get there. And so it's like, all of that work I think is like so important to living the life that I want to live. That is such a good answer, Steph. That is such a good answer. Ah, we don't <laughs> talk about that enough as a people. But man, that work is so important. 
And you're right, it's, it's so personal, but there's a lot to be proud of. Ah, good answers. This was fun. <laughs> um, I know you already gave your website address, but, but can you tell the people where they can follow you and learn more? Absolutely. My professional website is www.stephaniemayfisher.com. Um, I have an Instagram that I don't update as much as I should, but I, I am working on that too. And that is at Silk Dupioni, S-I-L-K-D-U-P-I-O-N-I. Um, and I think that's all. Something we didn't talk about at all today, though, I'm realizing is like, my thesis work and that might be a really interesting topic for future conversation have to come back then guess so yeah that that is a a very interesting conversation we absolutely (laughs) should have that uh, at some point um and and for those of you taking notes at home don't you worry those will be in the show notes as well (laughs) her website and her handle um well but but Thank you. Thank you for being here and chatting with me on this and and going on this really good adventure of information and deep diving. I I really appreciate the conversation today. Thanks for giving me a chance to wear my favorite Zoom lipstick. (laughs) If if no one else gets anything else out of it, Stephanie got to wear her favorite Zoom lipstick and that is important. (laughs) Um, but thank you to all of you for for watching or listening today's episode and don't forget that if you enjoyed this content please hit the like button and subscribe and share with people that you think would enjoy this Um, otherwise we'll be back with some more interviews soon all right everyone cheers bye thank you all for being here with me today and i'll see you again soon cheers Thank you for listening to Musical Theater Writer Guy, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to rate and review this show as it really helps others to discover what you already know. And please do share this show far and wide so we may all become an even closer musical theater community.